Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-453 of the Run Run Live podcast. And today's show was all about stress fractures because I discovered with the help of an MRI that I have a stress fracture in my knee, which is oddly comforting. I was betting that it would be another one of those cases where the doctor sort of shrugs and tells me to take it easy and do some PT, but no. I have an honest-to-goodness, real-to-life injury that you can see, or I guess that he can see. And the doctor asked silly questions like, do you run a lot? And that's a solid yes. But remember, this was a follow-up telephone call for this MRI, so he already talked to me. He already knew all this stuff. I get the feeling he's just lost in a sea of patience, and it's all just a blur to him. Anyhow, today we dedicate our show to the humble but proud stress fracture. At this point, um, seven or eight weeks into a break. <laughs> Get it? I have been uh, hiking most days with Ollie. I've been getting some easy bike rides in. I was going to do the full-on pivot and launch full-scale into some cross-training, join the gym. But remember last time we talked and I had just bounced myself on the road pretty hard after an uncomfortable unfortunate mountain bike incident. Yeah, well, I'm pretty sure I broke a rib. <laughs> and I've had a lot of pain there, like can't sleep pain, and haven't really been able to do much of any kind of like real exercise while that heals. So basically, I'm just a mess. I'm an old, broken athlete. <laughs> and my, my original idea for this show was to have uh, the sound of bubble wrap in the background on the transitions and explained that my wife and my coach had told me to consider wrapping myself in a protective layer of bubble wrap from now on. But hey, a little time off won't kill you, right? And today we talk about stress fractures. In section one, I'll talk about, well, um, stress fractures. In our interview, I talked to Bill who had a good story about, well, I bet you can guess. Yeah, stress fractures. And in section two, I'll talk about the new Jeffrey Moore book, which has nothing to do with stress fractures. And I was about to say stress fractures would be a good name for a punk band, but then I googled it, 
And it is indeed already an emo punk band out of South Carolina, because of course there's an emo punk band out of South Carolina called The Stress Fractures. And that's what I like about this world. And I kind of like their single, Rock and Roll is Dead. I took this week off. I mean, from work. Like actual work. It was a bit of an experiment. I was a bit burnt out. I think you could tell this whole pandemic Zoom call thing has burnt me out a little bit. But I didn't really have like a reason to take time off. I didn't have any place to go or any place to be. My current company has an unlimited vacation policy which is absolutely befuddling to a baby boomer like me. So, um, how much vacation do I get? It's unlimited! Um, so theoretically I can just leave and never come back and you'll keep paying me? This is some sort of trap, right? So I wanted to see if I could actually take a week off and not get sucked back into work, uh, maybe recharge a little, get some projects done. And I've been mildly successful. I did get pulled back in for some calls, and I haven't got much done with my current physical disabilities, <laughs> but mildly successful. Monday was uh, Patriots Day. Yay. So there's a lot of Boston Marathon chatter about. I posted a mile of my walk with Ollie for my millennial mile. Good time. 23 minutes. <laughs> a real scorcher. Now they uh, they send me a box with a medal and a hat in it, and, uh, and there you go. I got my first race for the year. I signed up for the virtual version of the Boston Marathon in, in October. Uh, I'm in no shape to actually go to Hopkinton and respect this race. I probably won't be by October, but by doing it virtually, I can keep my, my streak intact. Not that it matters, because I don't really know how I'm, I would be able to qualify for the next one. So this week on my self-imposed vacation, I made a couple of long lists of the things I wanted to get done, and then I proceeded to waste time and not get most of them done. Do you do that? Do you overcommit yourself and then get mad at yourself for not living up to your overcommitments? That's uh, that's really a kind of a dumb thing to do, isn't it? That's sort of setting yourself up to fail. So instead, what you should do is set yourself up to succeed. Instead of making a long aspirational list, just pick one or two or three things every day that you can accomplish. And if you get those things done, the day is a win. Everything else is gravy. This is a concept called winning the day. And that's how you game the system. Don't do everything. Just do those things that give you the win and give yourself permission to have a win and what you will find is that when you win today and then tomorrow and then string a few together for a couple of weeks, you'll be moving the needle. So win the day. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Stress fractures. The little bone crack that could... And I'm quite excited this week to have a stress fracture. It gives me something to talk about. And remember, I am not a doctor, so you should ignore most, if not all, of my advice. What is a stress fracture? Well, it's a little crack in one of your bones, usually caused by repetitive impact. What are the symptoms and what's the diagnosis here? So 
Typically, a stress fracture will occur in the lower extremities. Think hips, knees, and feet. Most commonly, they're in the lower leg. Think shins and feet. And these kinds of fractures are more common with runners because of the nature of what we do. Some estimates say that 40% of runners will have a stress fracture in their lifetime. And, as we'll talk about a little bit later, stress fractures are more common in women. The symptoms tend to be a deep pain inside a joint or somewhere else on, on a bone. And this can be a sharp pain that typically occurs during use, or it can be a ache, like a lasting ache after use. And it will feel better with rest, but then come back when you use it. There may be noticeable localized swelling around the area of the fracture, but maybe not. If you keep running on the fracture, the pain will get worse as the crack gets reopened and the bone isn't allowed to heal. Eventually, the stress fracture will develop into a actual fracture proper and may require more invasive remedies. Unlike muscle pain or tendonitis, stress fractures need a longer time to heal. Three months or more is the standard. And many times a stress fracture can be seen in an x-ray if they're big enough. Sometimes, as in my case, they are so small you need an MRI. What causes a stress fracture? Well, there can be many contributing factors to you getting your stress fracture. First, the nature of the injury is that it comes from repetitive stress. Any sudden increase in volume or intensity can cause it. It's one of those injuries that will pop up in an intense training cycle or when you do back-to-back -back races. Anything that causes an abrupt change in the stress to your bones, like going from trails to road in the middle of a high-volume, high-intensity cycle, anything like that. And that being said, if you're an experienced runner with a couple of years in and a good pace, your bones should be used to the pounding. Your bones, like your muscles, they get stronger over time with use. They just take longer. Stress fractures can also be attributed to poor running shoes sometimes or bad form. Genetics play a role. Your bones are specific to you and your genetics. And some people are just more prone to stress fractures. You can also have underlying conditions that make your bones softer or more brittle that are disease or diet related. Nutrition plays a role. If you're not getting enough or the right kind of nutrients, it can weaken your bones. And as with everything else, it's uh, typically people would recommend a whole food healthy diet. Hormones can play a role. Depending on your nutrition and your hormone balance, your bone growth can be hampered. And women tend to have this hormonal imbalance challenge uh, that weakens the bones more than men. Obviously, there are bone-specific diseases like osteoporosis, etc., that make bone fractures more likely, but you'd probably already know about those if you had them. The bone can also have an existing weak spot that gets exploited by the stress of racing or training. For instance, if you've whacked that spot hard, the bruise can turn into a stress fracture in subsequent stressing activities. And this is what I think happened to me. I think I smashed this place on my knee by falling, either on a trail run or in a mountain bike crash, 
to create that weak spot. And then the high intensity training pushed it over the edge. If you get a stress fracture, congratulations. You are part of a very large club. And by the way, this is very common in elite runners. So congratulations. So what's your mediation? What's your treatment options? If you stop pushing it soon enough, the stress fracture will heal on its own. Three plus months of rest will allow the bone to knit over the crack and it will be good as new, if not better. If you keep pushing it and it turns into an actual fracture, you may need a cast to immobilize it or even surgery. The surgery is inserting pins into the fracture to close the crack and hold it in place so it can heal. And this whole process may take much longer, six plus months. And once it's healed, you have to go back in and take the pins out. So if you want to avoid stress fractures, make sure you have the appropriate footwear and clean form. Uh, Avoid severe increases or changes in your training volume and intensities. In cases where there is a nutritional problem, you can work with a nutritionist to make sure you're getting what you need for bone health. And most of what I've read doesn't recommend supplements um, as a cure-all. They prefer to adjust the diet instead so that you get what you need for your bone health. And there's really no way around giving it enough time to heal. Trying to come back too early will reset the clock and make it worse. That half marathon in two weeks, folks, it's going to have to wait. So in summary, bone fractures, they're quite common in runners, mostly in the lower legs and feet, and more often in women. They can be caused by overuse, pre-existing weak spots, disease, nutrition, hormones, or some combination thereof. Most common treatments include rest, surgery, and nutritional adjustments. Got any other questions? Good. Happy, stress-free running to you all. And now for today's featured interview. Bill, give us the 200 words on, on who you are and, and what we're talking about. My name is Bill Pritchett. I am a uh, active runner and triathlete who lives in central Michigan. And I've been involved in esports for quite a few years. I did a couple of marathons when I was uh, significantly younger and got back into all the uh, endurance sports in about 2008. I uh, returned to marathoning in 2009. And so 12 or so years later, after a lot of training, there are some things I've learned, a lot of good races and people I've met along the way. So it's always fun just to talk about sports and uh, especially endurance sports, uh, because it's one of my passions in life. I really believe that uh, if we keep ourselves in shape, if we stay active, we can continue to do this uh, well into life. And uh, currently at the age of 58, I'm still feeling well and able to compete and uh, still having fun with it all, which I think is a very important part of all this. Again, it's one of the things I really am passionate about in life and something I enjoy talking about. I uh, didn't uh, do a workout today because I'm broken. So I gave myself a stress fracture in my knee, which is very rare um, to understand. So apparently uh, the little lump that sticks off the end of my femur has a little crack in it. You had a similar experience with stress fractures when you first started Uh, back into it? 
Yes, my experience was quite a bit different, actually. My stress fracture was in my hip. Yeah. And what was unusual, I was only 25 years old at the time. So when I first moved to Michigan, I had moved to Central Michigan to take a job. And I met a lot of people who were into running. So one of the things that I started to do when I moved to Michigan was just I began to run a lot. And back then, this was 1988, we didn't do a lot of smart training. We didn't have Garmin watches. We didn't have the shoes we have today. We just all went out and ran. We didn't really know what we were doing. But I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the people I was meeting, making a lot of new friends, starting to get into some 5K and 10K races. It was a lot of fun. So what I did over the course of that summer is I began to ramp up and then met someone who was running the Detroit Marathon. Well, he and I trained. We had a good marathon experience, and I was happy with the way that all went. But shortly after that fall race, I started to feel some pain in that left hip area. And I didn't think too much about it at first. I continued to train. And as fall moved to winter, I took my training indoors to an indoor track. What I didn't realize I was doing on that indoor track was running on the days when that left leg was on the inside of the track and putting a lot of twisting and torque on the bones. And over the weeks that uh, followed that, I really became a lot more sore. It just became achy, especially in the morning I would wake up. And uh, finally, I did a race after a 10K running that way. I just had so much pain, I had to go to a med center. I would have thought that was something that could have been diagnosed so that I could just know to back down my mileage and let it rest. But uh, somehow a doctor missed that and told me I had a muscle strain. So they gave me prescription strength Motrin. I started taking the Motrin. I could run through the pain. And I didn't think too much about it from that point. There would be days where it bothered so me a did they do less. did they do x-rays? No, they didn't do a bone scan, no x-rays, an huh. MRI, nothing like that. Like I said, the whole diagnosis was just, just missed the fact that there was a stress fracture in there. And then finally, uh, there was a day where I was going up steps and my foot slipped on the step. And when my heel struck the ground, it broke that hip completely. So then so I became a medical emergency. A broken hip has to be uh, pinned immediately. And they were able to do a surgery that was successful, but obviously that was a huge setback and a very painful experience. That's part of what motivated me to talk to you today is if we can save someone else the kind of pain and trouble I went through, it would be totally worth it because stress fractures are something you must take seriously. You need to diagnose correctly and deal with it before it becomes a worse problem. Right. So if we back up a little bit, and uh, I'm going to write about this anyhow, but stress fracture is essentially a crack in your bone right? And it's going to be in various levels of severity from a weak spot, right? It doesn't even have to be a crack. It'd be a weak spot, which is how most of them start. And then they progress to a crack and then an actual fracture, right? And like you said, if you let it get to a fracture, you may have to take some more invasive uh, healing practices. Like typically it's pinning them, right? They pin them together to try and help them suture, help them heal. So what was the pain like? I mean, if you know your body, we've been doing this a long time, you know your body, you're a runner. That's one of the advantages we have. When we go to the doctor, we pretty much know what it is, right? When we get there, or at least we're able to describe it really well, like the cause and effect. What was the pain like? How could could you you have that guy tell you it's a muscle pull when you're a runner and go, yeah, I don't think so, right? Well, that's where I should have been more forceful because the day I went into the med center, like I said, this was the afternoon after a 10K race that morning. I'd committed to a team. It was kind of a team event where you add all the points and I just couldn't bail on my team. So I felt the peer pressure to show up and do the race and the race itself went okay. It was just that afternoon. It just became so painful and achy. And my wife had to kind of carry me in. I was almost riding piggyback behind her, just trying to get all the weight off my own legs to even get into the med center. And I guess 
I must have gotten news that I wanted to hear when the doctor kind of said that it wasn't anything too serious. To me, that seemed like good news, and I guess I was willing to accept that. But in hindsight, obviously, I should have said, no, this is much, much worse than just muscle soreness or a soreness that you would expect to feel from a, a little bit of overuse. Yeah. It was a dull ache deep down in. And I right. guess that's it's, what I would. It's deep. Yeah. I would warn anybody that has pain deep down in a joint or deep down in the bone. If it's just an achiness that seems to be worse when you apply weight to it and an ache that just doesn't go away, that's probably the sign of something deeper that needs to be checked out. Right. Or it only hurts when you really torque it, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or hurts a lot worse when you really torque it, right? So right. It's, it's fine for a while, but then you'll jump on the accelerator or do something different. Like in my case, it was hill repeats, right? And you get that sharp pain that's deep in the joint, right? And if a day or two off doesn't seem to alleviate it, muscle pain will will respond to a day or two of rest typically in my experience and so other thought- kinds of pulls and, and stresses. But uh, stress fracture isn't going to go away in a day or two. If it's a dull ache that persists, there's a chance of something like that. Yeah. And, and in my case with the knee, it was only in one position, one weight-bearing spot that I was getting that sharp pain. Whenever you get a sharp pain, you should take heed because sharp pains are never good. That's a good point, right? I figured it was cartilage deep in the joint there, right? Because cartilage can make that as well, right? In that joint, cartilage can make that same pain. You get a loose chunk in there. But as far as muscle tears or tendonitis, those have a certain feel to them that you can kind of identify. Right. right? And they're not as deep down in as uh, the pain that you feel with a stress fracture. Yeah. And with a muscle tear or, or something you did to your muscle, you can typically dig in there with your fingers and feel it. You can, mm-hmm. you can sort of locate, right, in the body of the muscle somewhere. So um, sometimes what I'll recommend people to do is uh, to get a, a good sports massage therapist, have them dig around a little bit and have them tell you what they think because they can find the angle that hurts and they have this sort of encyclopedic knowledge of all the little bits and pieces in there. And a skilled PT can also help pinpoint something. If they can't figure out that it's a certain muscle or a certain tendon, they might be able to help you diagnose a stress fracture. Right. They can narrow out things like that, that may be more common or maybe something that they could treat. In my research, I found that stress fractures almost always are something in the lower legs and it's typically knee down. It's typically feet. And that makes sense, right? And almost all of these places where I read stuff about stress fractures, they all mention running. So apparently this is a really common running foot injury is a stress fracture. And you, I would agree with that. Yeah. Based on just the people I've known who have uh, dealt with stress fractures, that seems to be the pattern. Right. And again, it's that sort of sharp pain inside the foot bone you broke something in the metatarsals and that's the most common form of it. I had a buddy who was a really, really good runner, Bill, who got a stress fracture right below the ball on the femur where it goes into the the hip joint. So that little ball on top of the femur that socks into the hip, he cracked it right there. Well, that's exactly where mine was. So it was on the femur. Yes, it's the femoral neck is the anatomical term for that area. Yeah, so so he he had the exact same fracture and he did the same thing. He won a 5K I was in him with before he went to the doctor. Wow. 
it hurt. You went out and won the 5K. Then you went to the doctor. Well, it sounds like the day I had when mine was uh, misdiagnosed. But yeah, somehow, I guess as runners, we tend to train ourselves to run through some pain and discovery. That's one of the issues we face as athletes, I think, is when you go through your training, you train yourself to put up with discomfort. Well, we almost get too good at that. Yep. You can be your own worst enemy because you've, you toughen up. You have people around you encouraging you, and then you learn to deal with a lot of pain. But knowing what's normal pain and what's pain that needs to be checked out is often where the line gets blurred and where people overlook things. Yeah. And our, our medical system is sometimes not the best if you're an amateur athlete because they, they just want to get you through the system. They just want to get right. you in one door and out the other, and they don't want to think about it a lot, right? And we tend to have fairly complex physiologies and problems. So it takes too much work. You also have a training plan. So if you have a pain, you want to get into the doctor right away so they can help you get right back on track and you keep up with your plan. But I've had experiences, we probably all have, where you may want to get into a doctor, you make the call and they can't see you for three or four weeks. Well, in a runner's world, that's forever away. Right. If you got a race coming up. Yeah. And then many of these pains are things where you kind of talk yourself out of it, give it a day or two and it feels a little better and you kind of go on. And, you know, probably a lot of us have had those kinds of things that linger just because what becomes a day or two becomes a week or two. And then after a couple of months, it still doesn't get better. Yeah. And you got to find that. I think think it's better these days where there's just more sort of amateur athleticism going on, especially with the kids and everybody, you know, there's the the doctors are more used to it now, but back when we started running, they would just say, Nope, take some ibuprofen, stay off it. Why are you doing this? Anyhow, stop being an idiot. (laughs) Right. There's more to your story though. You said the doctor told you you'd never run again. Or something yeah, he like said that. At the, time, it, he, the doctor made the prediction that he said, well, I can heal this. We'll pin it. It's going to heal. It'll take some time. But he made the comment, you'll probably never run any more marathons. And at the time, I just wanted to be able to be mobile again and regain my ability to get around. So they went through the surgery and it did take a long time. The break was in June and I was on crutches until the following February. We're talking nine or 10 months of yeah. being on crutches before that healed to the point where I could just walk around. And then I had a second surgery to remove the pins, which basically left that uh, piece of the bone hollowed out. So I had to be very, very careful after that second surgery because that bone had to fill in. And uh, so it all healed. And for several years in there, I didn't do a lot. My kids were born during those years. I got married. We were just busy raising a family. So finding the time to run marathons was the last thing on my mind during all those years. But then in about 2006, I started to get more active again doing low impact things, biking, the elliptical. And then in about 2008, I kind of wondered again if I could still run. I remembered what that doctor said, but I thought, well, maybe I could get back into it. I always enjoyed that sport. Uh, Some people I knew at the time were kind of getting into it. So I started to run again and was pain-free. It was the following year that I met some people who were training up for the Detroit Marathon and decided I would take on that challenge again. And since then, I believe I've done 38 marathons since 2009. And uh, some other significant events, I did a half marathon or a half Ironman in that time. I've done numerous trail runs of 25 miles, probably 40 events of marathon distance or greater. I I take some pride in the fact that I was able to prove that doctor wrong who predicted I wouldn't do marathons, but I had to be very careful as I ramped up and I continue to be real careful just to make sure that uh, I'm not doing anything that would be a setback like I suffered all those years ago. What's your cadence like? You doing every other day? You doing four days a week? What are you doing? 
I typically run four to five days a week yeah. for this current training cycle. Uh, my next marathon will be June the 19th in Charlevoix, Michigan. And so we're just ramping up. Uh, the long run is currently at 17 miles. This weekend, I'll do 18. Weekly mileage is in the 30 to 35 uh, mile yep. range. Yep. But I'm also biking a lot, swimming two days a week. And then I spend some time in the weight room just doing PT type exercises for lower body Yep. And some upper body yep. strength exercises just to maintain a healthy body weight. It sounds like a full-time job. Yeah, it's become that some days, but I retired about a year and a half ago. So I'm fortunate to have the extra time and just enjoy doing this. So I have some friends I ride bikes with, some friends I run with, uh, another friend that likes to lift. So when that becomes kind of a social activity, it's something I enjoy. How did it feel when you came back to running after all those years? How were those first couple of runs? Well, it's kind of hard to remember, actually. There were some people that I worked with who were running at lunchtime, I guess is how that all started. Like I said, I kind of came back just to do the elliptical some, met some people in the fitness center at work, and we began doing some lunchtime runs. And so those, our typical route was four and a half miles. That was more of a social thing. They took it at a pretty easy pace and but once I got to know some people through that and then met some runners who were challenging me speed-wise a little bit more, it became a little bit more competitive. And then I started doing some 5 and 10Ks. At that point, I kind of got the bug for racing again. Once right, I got a taste right. of that, uh, I believe my first race uh, when I came back to running would have been a St. Patrick's race. So that March, I believe I was 10th place in my age group. And I kind of made up my mind I should do better than that. And uh, by April, I was moving up. And then by summer, I was really challenging the top competitors in my age group. So, you know, just a lot of fun to kind of stage a comeback and see if I could challenge people after all those years. Do you ever have those thoughts run through your mind where you step on a curb funny and you feel a little twinge someplace? You go, oh, shit. Oh, of course. (laughs) I think we all have those days where every once in a while you just step a little bit wrong or, you know, sometimes downhill skiing is another activity I enjoy. And every once in a while you have that fall where you just kind of, Feel your legs and wiggle your toes and make sure everything's still intact. But uh, yeah, I this, this some is of that something, comes with age, but it happens to everybody. This is something else, Bill, that I'm discovering, right? Everybody talks about it takes longer to recover, right? Okay, we get it. It takes yes. longer to recover. But I'll tell you what it also takes a lot longer to recover from. Falling down, right? You used yeah, to roll, true. get up, and keep running, right? And now it's like, oh, God, I feel like I got run over by a truck for two days. <laughs> It pays to be extra cautious, you know, just on the bike. I'm much more careful than I used to be. Downhill skiing, I'm a lot more conservative than I used to be. But cross-country skiing, I took a couple falls this year. And uh, one scraped my leg up. Another one, I felt like I really pulled something on the back of the other leg. So, yeah, those kinds of things can be a setback at any time. What kind of advice would you have for folks? Because where this is going to happen in your training plan is where you're racing a lot or you're, you're doing a lot of max training and doing right. max training on tired legs, right? So a lot of training plans do this specifically on purpose, right? Where you do a long run, you'll do a recovery run, and then you'll hit some sort of speed workout, or you'll right. hit some sort of race. And that's where you're going to break some, right there, right? So for me, the biggest thing is just to know your limits and to try to space out some of those more challenging runs just to make it so that your body has a little bit of recovery time in between. So for example, my current training plan typically has us running a little bit higher mileage on a Monday. Tuesday is an off day from running, so I cross train or just take a rest day. And then we don't do speed work until later in the week. So typically with this training plan, it's a little bit different than what I've been doing because the speed work would occur on Friday and then the long run on Saturday. So I'm going against that advice that I've used my last few training cycles where I would split those up by a few days. 
I think I'd put the a day between those. Now, I was, I'm sorry? I said, I think I would put a day between those because I think that's what got me in trouble too. I think I will as the long runs get longer. Like I said, we're working up to 18 miles this weekend and I'm starting to get a little bit nervous about doing speed work on Friday and then turning that into an 18 miler the next day. The theory, yeah. of course, yeah. is you're doing those long runs slower on tired legs. Right. In so depth. For the yeah. final miles of the marathon, not the early miles. Right. But you're still, I feel like we're kind of asking for trouble if we're running 18 milers, 19 and 20 on legs that did speed work the day before. Yeah. And so what kind of speed work are you doing? That varies. Uh, tomorrow, or this Friday rather, will be six times a quarter mile. A friend of mine has a coach that he's enlisted to help with this training cycle. So that coach tends to vary it quite a bit. Sometimes it's uh, 800 meters. You know, we'll do a half mile for the interval and do six or eight of those. We've done intervals as long as two miles in this training yeah. cycle. Yeah. One week, it was one mile at a time. I'm not sure what the magic formula is there. Yasso 800 seems to be something that a lot of people do, and I've had some success with that. But in my experience, the length of the interval isn't nearly as important as the fact that you're doing something for speed work. Right. Yeah. Get, you know, working training. on that lactate threshold, just working on getting the heart and lungs to go that fast. And then psychologically, marathon pace seems that much easier once you know you can go faster. So you're doing speed work once a week? Once a week currently. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And that, that's my typical plan that I've used for a long, long time is speed work once a week, a longish run sometime in the middle of the week, the long run typically on Saturday, and then a couple of other just recovery runs throughout the week. Yeah, so I think the uh, mileage to 45 or so miles at the peak when yeah. the long run gets in. I think when I come back, I think I'm going to um, not do any uh, 100% stuff, right? The, the hard speed work, the max stuff. I think I'm going to back away from that because I don't need those speeds anymore, right? Mm-hmm. There's no reason to run that hard. I think I'll tweak that more towards tempo, 85%, 75% as opposed to 100%. Mm-hmm. Right, which just, should help your recovery significantly, I would yeah. think. And you get the same benefit. If you're training for a marathon or a long race, you're going to get the same benefit, right? There's no place True. in a marathon you're going to use a quarter mile at two minutes faster than your marathon goal pace. Right. Right. Or a hill sprint. There's no place you're going to use that. So that kind of specificity, great for the elites, not so much for me as an old guy. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's interesting. You got to sort this stuff out. Right. Depending on where you yeah. are in your journey. Right. The other thing I would, uh, that I've changed in the last year or so, I had some tendonitis about a year and two months ago that got quite uh, severe. And so I've really worked on the pose method of running since the time that injury happened to me. I'm not sure if your listeners are familiar with the pose method, but before I was a heel striker and I didn't realize how much extra force that was putting onto my bones and tendons and muscles with every uh, stride. So being a heel striker was something a PT that I went to recognize right away. He looked at my shoes and uh, could tell right away that with the heel on the outside of the heel being worn so badly that my running form was way off. Right. You're overstriding. Yep. Yes. It, very uh, wasteful. Very inefficient. It's very wasteful. I've, what I've learned a lot over the last year or so, just reading about it and working on the new technique. But what I realized was I was just putting a lot of extra stress on my legs that I could avoid by running a little bit differently. So with yeah. the pose method, you're landing on the forefoot and it's just a much springier feel. Yep. If you imagine yourself just running in place or just bouncing more off the uh, midfoot to jump up and down, you feel springy doing that. 
And when you bring that kind of motion to your running, it just puts much less stress on your legs and you just feel like it's easier somehow. There's three or four different techniques that are very similar, but it's all natural forefoot running form. You're falling and you're catching yourself. You get those nice, short, easy strides. It really takes a lot of the stress out of your running. But remember, when we grew up in the 70s and 80s, you had those shoes with the giant heels on them. It was all about the crash pad, right? Exactly. (laughs) So so we got trained the wrong way. Nobody ever taught us how to run. Well, and I had one younger person who told me as recently as, oh, maybe three years ago, he was a very talented runner, said, oh, stretch that leg out, Bill. They'll always catch you. And he would always (laughs) encourage me to finish strong by stretching out my stride and finishing every run and every race that way. Well, you can and what still, I learned from post running was the speed should come from cadence and fast cadence. turnover yeah. as you carry your body weight forward, leading with the hips, and not from stretching out the stride. And once I got that through my mind and started to get a feel for it, it began yeah. to feel quite a bit different. Yeah, if you're going fast enough, your stride length is going to stretch out anyhow, because you sort of True. have to reach out to keep up. Um, but your footfall is going to land right under the center of your body, right? You're exactly. just going fast enough that you're having to take. If you watch the Kenyans run, they've got giant stride lengths, but they're right. flying and their feet are landing underneath them. They're not overstriding, right? And they got that good heel kick up the back. But anyhow, running nerds. All right. So what do you got planned for the fall? So uh, my fall race will be the Boston Marathon. I was able to sign up uh, last week for what will be my 12th consecutive Boston. All right. So You're coming up in uh, person. looking forward to that and hoping it can be held in person like they plan. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to do it in my neighborhood probably. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll get sure. some of my friends who will go run around the town. Well, there you go. A virtual race could be just as fun. I learned that last year. We, uh, of course, with Boston being canceled, I just did it here in my hometown, but had some friends at the finish line and we had a nice little celebration after the race. Yeah, so, we're in a uh, tough spot, was, you and I, because we need a 335, right? That's even the challenge. Though, even though we got 10 years in, we still need the 335. Yeah. Yeah. The, the advantage is the cutoff, if there is one, will not apply, but right. uh, still having to make that time could be a challenge. Like you mentioned before, it will become much easier once I hit the age of 60. So yep. by Boston of 2023, when I'm qualifying for that race, I will be 60 years old and get the extra 10 minutes. But right. no, I think uh, it's for 15. the 2022 race, that will be my biggest challenge. I think it's 15. One more time. I think Is it 15 extra minutes? So that would be huge. I think you got 350. Okay. Yeah. So at that point, that should be much easier than in my early 60s. But that race when you're 59 trying to qualify is the tough one. I remember this back when they gave us a 3.30, and I was like, 3.30? I'll never need that much time, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it catches up to you. All right, Bill, I'll let you go. Thanks for All the right, chat. It was good talking to Any, you. Anything you want to call out? Anything people should uh, to know about in terms of websites or links or anything like that? Uh, I would guess I would just recommend anyone interested in the pose method of running. Uh, if you continually face uh, injuries and things like tendonitis or stress fractures, you can find videos about that on YouTube. So just uh, go into YouTube and look for pose running. And there are several videos that explain the technique and kind of give an overview of it. Yep. Yeah. Some Russian guy, I think was. Yeah. Dr. Romanoff was kind yeah. of the, uh, yeah. he wrote the book called the running revolution. Which yeah. I've Interesting read. character. Yeah, and there are I'll several. Leave it, I'll leave it at that. that yeah. <laughs> but there are a lot of books and resources that uh, talk about the same technique. The core of it is uh, the same as um, all the good running form. Exactly. So, all right, we'll talk to you. I'll let all you right, go. It was good talking to you. Thanks for your time today. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye bye.
Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Okay, folks, we're going to talk about Zone to Win, a new business book, a current business book by Jeffrey Moore. And this is another timely, excellent piece of management theory from Jeffrey Moore. If uh, you want, there's also a YouTube chalk talk that Jeffrey does on this, and that link is in the show notes. So Jeffrey Moore makes his living creating new frameworks in business that rationally explain company and market behavior. And he then uses these frameworks to mine epiphanies for we lesser souls. And I can remember reading Crossing the Chasm in the early 90s and being blown away by how it made sense of the seeming chaos of the startup world. Chasm created a whole new rational framework to explain that world, one so robust that it created its own language and definitions that are still being used, that have moved into the business lexicon as baseline facts. So when you hear someone casually toss out a phrase like early adopter, and everyone in the room nods their head and knows exactly what that is, you owe Jeffrey Moore and his insight. Few people can describe a market dynamic so clearly and then tell you why you care, why it matters, and what you can do about it. So his new book, it's called Zone to Win, and it's one of those books. The framework it creates is already moving into the lingua franca of the business world. So why? Why do we care? Because, my friends, we are living in what could be called the disruption economy. There are waves of new and disruptive technologies assailing today's companies. Disruption has been around forever, but today is different. The disruptions are coming faster and with greater magnitude. Immense shifts of private capital have created a disruption machine where disruptions at scale are being accelerated and pushed into every market every day. And existing companies are being battered. They face what Mr. Moore calls a crisis of prioritization, or what another author had called the innovator's dilemma. Do you focus on shoring up your traditional business that is under attack by the disruption, or do you pivot and invest in owning the next disruption? So the problem is that your current revenue and profit come from the existing customers and the existing business. But future revenue and profit will only come from the disruptive business, the new business. And if you stand still, your business is eventually eaten by the disruption. But if you shift to a new business, you sacrifice your revenue and profit. What do you do? Every large business is confronted by this impossible choice. What to do? The only way a business can survive is to, one, catch the next wave or one of the next waves, and two, prevent the current wave or the next wave from catching you. And this means you must play offense and defense at the same time. It's like coaching a youth soccer team. Before they get much coaching, the kids just all chase the ball, right? To win, they need to spread out and play positions. Zones of offense, zones of defense. And this is where we need 
a new framework to figure out how to allocate our priorities in this new disruptive world. Because the old business and the new business are entirely different investment profiles, and each needs to be managed differently to be successful. And this is the new framework called Zones to Win. And it's a four-box framework, because of course it is. And the first box on the upper right-hand quadrant, if you're looking at it, is called the Performance Zone. And this is where the existing business lives. This is where your existing revenue and margin comes from. And you need this business to do well and continue to create returns for the investors and cash for the business. So how do you incent and drive this engine? Quadrant two, if you move down, so lower right, is the productivity zone. And this zone is all the tools and enhancements that squeeze revenue and profit out of the existing performance zone. What defensive investments can you make to fend off disruptions to your existing business? How can you optimize it? And then moving over to the left is the incubation zone. And this is the birthing area for new ideas. Similar to a venture capitalist, the incubation zone is where you have a portfolio of nascent innovations that may turn into disruptions themselves that you can then go on offense with. Or they may be co-opted to help defend the performance business against a disruption as a defensive move. So the fourth zone, though, is the upper left, and this is called the transformation zone. And this is the new one. This is where you pick one innovation from the incubator once a decade, and you scale it rapidly to A, disrupt a business segment offensively, and B, create a new line of performance business that is equal uh, 10% or more of your overall revenue. So you're creating a new line of business. At any point in time, your business can be on offense by being the disruptor or defense by being the disruptee or in a state called halftime where there is a pause in the disruption and where you are will determine your response. But you, you can use this framework no matter where you are. The beauty of this framework is that it answers that question should I preserve my existing business or jump into a new business? And the answer is yes, but use the framework to institute clarity and rigor so that you can do so successfully. I'm going to skip the performance zone and the productivity zone for now because they're similar to what you're doing already in any big business. The framework just gives them focus, clarity, and investment priority. The incubation and transformation zones, that's what is potentially new to a company. The incubation zone is a way for companies to isolate and nurture innovation so that it has clarity and investment without getting in the way of the performance zone. These can be either internally developed technologies or acquisitions. You are farming all of these innovations like a venture capitalist would in the expectation that one of them is going to break out and make it big perhaps once a decade, and that's going to become a new line of business going forward. The rest of those will either be folded into existing offerings as enhancements for defense or offense, or they'll be discontinued or spun out. The big difference in this framework is the transformation zone. 
this is where we take one of these incubation zone initiatives and purposely scale it to a new line of business. Most big companies are terrible at this. <laughs> they try to use the existing go-to-market infrastructure to launch and scale the new innovation, and it doesn't work. It just creates conflicts of interest within the performance zone, and you end up losing everything or giving up. The key to the transformation zone is understanding that it takes a unique go-to-market engine to scale a new initiative, a new innovation, and it has to scale quickly. The market opportunity window, it's quite small. You need to capture that opportunity and do it quickly. And this is where we talk about investment horizons. You still with me? So horizon one, horizon one, investments in horizon one are those that will be realized in the current fiscal year. That's how we're paying the bills this year. Horizon two are investments that will come to fruition in two to three years, but will probably have negative cash flow and struggle until then. Horizon three are investments that will pay back in three to five or more years, and those are probably your R&D portfolio. So this is how companies prioritize investment. Horizon one is where we have performance and optimization of the current operating goals. Investments in horizon two consist of scaling an innovation to be a significant contributor two to three years out. And investments in Horizon 3 create the inventory of those, that portfolio of those innovations. And it's a brilliantly clear framework for the corporate world of today. It allows the CEO, the board of directors, and every player on the field to focus on exactly what they need to do to make the company successful. And it enables companies to defend their business against disruptive technologies while proactively nurturing and launching disruptions of their own. It enables the playing of offense and defense in a coherent and cohesive manner. You can even apply this to your own life, right? Most of us have a portfolio of things we're working on and are forced to balance our investments of time and energy. If you look at the, let's say, 10 or so good ideas or projects that you've got going on, how do you pick one and give it the attention to scale? And most of us will try to average our energy investment across multiple projects, which doesn't move the needle in any of them. Or we will work hard on one but give up too early because it's, you know, it's losing money metaphorically. So could this zone to win framework help you answer your personal conflicted priorities question? Maybe. So this is a great work of business theory in a small, easy, digestible book. Buy it now because your CEO has already read it and is implementing this framework and you'll need to know where you fall into it. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, we have stressed our fractures through to the end of episode 4-453 of the Run Run Live podcast. Careful with those weight-bearing activities. Did you see Des Linden set a new 50K world record last week? She ran a 259.54 which averages out to 547 miles. Yeah, think about that. 547 miles for 31 plus miles. That's solid work. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm more than halfway through my three-month hiatus from running, and it'll be interesting to see what happens when I come back. 
I'm curious to see how much I lose in these more lengthy layoffs. So I tend to lose uh, speed permanently now that I'm older, right? It just, you drop down a notch <laughs> and it doesn't come back. And to be honest with you, I feel like I need to find a safer, healthier way to integrate running into my life, maybe take it down a notch. The rib is feeling much better today. And maybe I'll get back to the gym if it continues to recover quickly with some more of these uh, off weeks. I'm still a mess as far as strength and flexibility, and and I'm getting a little heavy. But we'll see. I'm in I'm in no hurry. I'm relatively sanguine about the process. May ninth is when I get my second vaccine shot, and that'll free me up theoretically to be able to travel again. And I hope so because I miss the road. I know most people loathe travel uh, for work anyhow, but I always enjoyed it. Not the work part so much, but certainly the travel part. And I've got a new hobby, (laughs) maybe not a new hobby, but I've gone deeper into one of my existing hobbies. I've been spending more time in the science fiction community, that world, since I've launched my Apocalypse podcast after the apocalypse. Remember to go and uh, download it, listen to it, like it. Uh, But it's one of those things It always fascinates me to see how every seemingly niche subject has a crew of unbridled enthusiasts, These this crowd of people who this is what they do, and science fiction is no different. I mean, these folks are in deep, and I'm not sure you'll catch me dressing up as an alien and going to conventions in Parsippany to take selfies with third-string actors, but that does sound like a great place to people watch, doesn't it? And speaking of dangerous aliens... Were we speaking of dangerous aliens? I don't know. But I'd like to call out some members. Yes, there is a membership option at the Run, Run, Live website. And I don't push it because this is a hobby, not a business. But they do make me feel all warm and fuzzy like a cuddly puppy when they sign up and they give me financial support. So I, you know, I want to pay them back. And the most expensive thing about podcasting right now is internet security. There's so many bad actors out there that you have to have your website totally locked down. And that's one of the big reasons why I switched to ACAST for my new show, because they handle all the security. But back to our discussion about dangerous aliens. I'd like to introduce some of our friends that have paid membership recently. I'm only going to do three at a time. (laughs) But I'll get to you. All right. First is Marcy. Now, Marcy, I looked at her uh, Facebook page, and she's a member of the International Space Force who's currently working to put out some accidental fires that got started on the attack ships off the shoulder of Orion. Uh, It must be difficult to find a certified course out there to requalify for Boston. And then there's Jason. Jason is a professional archaeologist and undercover spy, currently in deep cover in the Levant, attempting to thwart organized crime outside of Babylon. And Daniel, Daniel F., hey, Daniel, friend me on Facebook so or something so I know who you are. But my best guess is, Daniel, you're either a shape-shifting alien from the future or a multidimensional demon sent as a explorer from a dying universe. But that's just an educated guess. Anyhow, Thanks for the support. It takes a village. 
You know what else you can do? You can reach out to me or send me an email. Send me some audio. I'll play audio. It's a fun thing. Take some random audio of some nature noises or your dog. Send them in. Maybe I'll use them in the outro. It's cyktrussell at gmail.com. You know the drill. I did manage to get my garden prepped this week, and I burned my brush pile, so I won those days. <laughs> Other than that, I've been catching up on reading and writing and generally just wasting time. One of the things you realize when you take time off is that you really don't have to work. You choose to work, but you could just as easily choose not to work. And we make up so many rules and constraints in our lives, but at the end of the day, it's all just made up. And those are your rules. So if you don't like them, make up some new rules. Your game, your rules. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. All right, let's turn off the uh, the Grand Funk Railroad. Get into the zone here. Maybe have a little tea. Kind of windy outside. You might get the wind noises. All right, let us go. Let us go. Let us go. <clears throat> Hello, my friends, and welcome. Good rain, Ollie. We needed it. This will make all all the vegetable seeds in our garden grow. <laughs> 